So we're starting off a new series, so I'm going to change gears really quickly with a bit of a crunch there. We're, going to, we're starting a new series now where we're looking at, we're looking at what it is meaning to be together. So we're better together is what we've um, called this series, and we're going to be going through a whole um, series of sermons on what that means and how that looks in different areas. So today... Um, because Mark's not here, I got the what is or what the church is. So I got the small little <laughs> one to start with, um, which is which I thought would be okay. Um, and so I thought I'll take an extra day to prep for this because you know that'll that'll help me get and distill out all the things. And um, and I found that actually all it does when you give more time to some things is it just opens up and shows you how much broader this is than you ever comprehended. So my first question would be, when did the church start? So does anyone, and it's not a trick question, um, but does anyone know when the church, when we would say the New Testament church started? Yeah, Pentecost, yeah. So we would say that at Pentecost, that would be when the Holy Spirit came down and the tongues of fire came into the upper room, we would say that that was when the New Testament church was birthed. Now the reason I'm saying the New Testament church is because when you start looking at what church is, it's been around a lot longer than the New Testament church of what we know it to be. So the church, the word itself, is actually a Greek word. Well, church isn't, but it comes from the Greek word. And it actually means uh, called out ones. And now we think that's great. That, that's exactly what we are, the called out ones. But in the Greek culture, that wasn't, it's not what we thought it meant, that God called us out to be a people unto him. No, it was actually that it was a, when free states in, the, um, in Greece would call out the people to a public meeting so that they could discuss and decide on decisions for that particular area. So that was called the Ecclesia, where they would be called out to a place where they would assemble together and they'd make public decisions. So the church in itself, the word itself, just really means assembled people or those who are called to come together in a public way. And when you start hearing that, then actually you can start seeing that the church starts a long time before that. Because the church that we know today, the New Testament church, is actually the fulfillment of a prophecy, or a promise, should I say, that started right back in Genesis. So if we go back to Genesis 12... We have the very first seed of what the church will be. And the focus of what the church was always meant to be. And so as we have this understanding of what the church is, as a called out one, assembled, a public assembly of people, we have this promise that was given to Abram, or Abraham as he became. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make 
of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this assembly of the people that was to be the called out ones by God started with this promise to Abraham that he would call or cause him to become a many, many that would then from him flow forth and bless all nations. And then God, and you'd think like that may just be a one-off promise, and sometimes we get these grand promises, don't we? And we have some grand promises that God has given to us as a church. Sometimes you think it's just a, a one-off thing, but God just reiterates that again and again. So if you skip forward to Genesis 26, here you've got once again God reiterating this exact promise of what he wanted he's called out ones to be. And so to Isaac he says, So journey in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your, in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. The very same thing God promises to Abraham. He, he passes it on to Isaac. And if we flip over the page, we've got the very next. And, and this is where we have a formation of a people group coming together in, in the Israelites. And, and as such, they're not really much of a people group at, mo- at the moment. At the moment, they're very small. And, not, and yet the promise is that God's going to cause through them all nations to be blessed. And he, he says it to Abraham, and then he repeats it to Isaac. And as we know, the, the nation of Israel gets its name from the next patriarch from Jacob, where God changes his name and says, no longer will you be called Jacob, but Israel. And this is a promise that God gives to Jacob. And Jacob is here, he has a dream, and in this dream he sees the heaven open. And God says and says to him, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and of Isaac. And the land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now when you hear something like this, now that's a massive bit. Like imagine that you're having a dream and you get something like that. And it's it's something that you would have heard your dad and your grandfather say. But here's this massive big plan and you're thinking, surely we can't multiply quick enough to get to all the earth. And that is true because the promise was never about an ethnic group. Do you see how grand this promise is? It's so grand it could never be fulfilled by an ethnic group. It had to be more than that. It had to be much more than that. And if and we don't have time, but we could go through the whole of the Old Testament and you would see, and especially the, like, I don't know how much you guys go through the you know, Leviticus and Deuteronomy and things like this, but do you know there is masses of the grace of God in that for the people who were not ethnic Jews. Do you know how often it was put in law that those who were sojourning in the land would be protected? And actually there was allowance for them to be added to 
And some of the commentators will even say that as the Israelites left Egypt, it was not just the Jews who left. There was actually other people group, even Egyptians themselves, that probably would have added themselves to the Jews saying, we will go with you. If this is what God does, then we want to be going with him. See, there's always been an allowance for this promise to be fulfilled, not through an ethnic promise, but through the church, the called out ones, the assembled ones, those who are called to God. And if we flick, I'm just going to jump right through to Acts. If we go to Acts 6, and we've got here a story of um, 6 or 7. 7. Acts 7. And here we have the story, the speech of Stephen. Now, the, when Stephen gives his speech, I don't, it's one of those amazing speeches, isn't it? So he goes, I'm going to tell you the whole history, the whole redemption, redemption history right now. Here he is standing up. They're ready. They've got their stones ready. And he's going to tell them the whole redemptive history. And in this, this is where we know, and so I'm, the reason I'm, I'm bringing this out is because I want you to see that actually even the Jews knew that it was not just a group of ethnic people. Like Stephen, particularly in this passage, was trying to show them that. Because there comes a point here where he talks about Moses, and he says, this is the Moses who said, so this is verse 37, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will, rise, will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one, yeah, will rise up a prophet from you like, uh, rise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who is in the congregation, in, who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. So in this passage of scripture, Moses was prophesying that there'd be another prophet to come, which he was saying this is the Jesus who's coming. But he's also saying that this one who is coming was, was also in the congregation. And this word congregation that he uses there, it's translated in most times congregation, but it's actually the same word that would be translated in other places as church. So here is Stephen saying that actually the church is nothing more than a continuation on of a promise that God had said right back here. It has now come, and, and the, promise, the, the prophecy that a prophet would come, who would be even greater than Moses, who was even there when I prophesied as the angel who gave the oracles of God to man, he has come, and it is now the continuation of the congregation, the, the called out ones, the ones who come together, the church. So as we see that the church is this promise that has come along from God, from way back in the beginning. It's not a, a new thing. It's a God thing. And with God things, you can't even really pick where the beginning starts because it has almost, as in a sense, always been this, this plan of God to have a called out one, to have people that he could call his own. So we have this word church, congregation, called out ones, chosen and this is a, a concept that's been going right through Scripture. And when you start to look into the, what the church is, it becomes more and more difficult to see what the church as a called out one and an assembled people, a public 
assembly of people is and what it means to actually be included into the church of God. Because we have this... uh, The theologians will say we've got this concept of church in almost in two parts. We have the visible church, that is the people we see actually turning up every day or those that are in other churches and we can see that there's a visible assembly of people. So we say we can see the church visible. But there's also this, what the theologians will say, the invisible church. Those who have been predestined, those who have been called, those who are actually part of Christ. That's not my phone part of Christ that are called to be his own. And now the, the problem with that is we can't, I can't tell you who is or who isn't in the body of Christ. That's not my job. I'm, I'm so grateful. That's not my job. Nor is it any other human's job. But what it does do is we have this concept of the visible church that we all see people gather to and an invisible aspect of it that where people are, are predestined, that they are called to be God's people. And this you can be assured of for yourself. This, this is an assurance that you can have. But we don't want to have a look at these difference between what's the invisible and visible church because when we start to look at people like the the apostle paul so the apostle paul who was one of the early um well the first missionary in in fact who who dedicated his life to go to the gentiles to go to those who were not of the jewish nation so here's this this bloke paul who believes a call on his life is to go to those who have never ever heard of such thing as, as Jehovah, of God, of Yahweh, of Jesus, of the Holy Spirit. Never heard any of this. And, and so his mission, his life is given to this. And because of that, he has perhaps the clearest and most helpful way of putting what the church is. And so when we come to try and understand the church, we can, we can see it all through Scripture, but Paul has a unique way of putting it to us that helps us see what it means to be that church of Jesus Christ. And the one thing that Paul harps on about time and time and time again is unity faith, and fellowship. Time and time again, he's always bringing these up, always bringing them up. This is what the church is about. We're going to look at Ephesians. If we go to Ephesians 2.11, actually, this I want to actually demonstrate something to you as well because what can sometimes happen is we can sometimes split the Bible into the Old Testament and New Testament and thinking the Old Testament's done and dusted and And now we've got the New Testament, we've got the better, we've got the new 2.0 church, and we're really on fire, and we're going with it. And the old, well, we just chucked that away. But Paul was really adamant that we never, ever did that. And I want to just try and demonstrate a little bit of what that is about. So I'm going to have you two, I'm going to have you two come stand up here. So Isaac thought he would have a nice, easy time. Stand there. You can face the front because 
They like seeing your smiley face. <laughs> okay, you need to be separated at the moment. Okay, so we're going to read through um, Ephesians 2 from 11. Now I want to show you the difference between the old and the new and what Paul was trying to say to the church and what we are to be. And this is not just to do with um, Jews and Gentiles, those who were um, from the Jewish nation and those who were not. This is speaking even more broadly than that. But I want to show you what Paul was trying to do when he was trying to say to the, um, the church at Ephesus about what it meant to be part of the body of Christ, the church. It says, so you're going to be, so you're 2.0, okay? So you're going to be Gentiles and you're going to be the Jews. All right. So we're going to read through this. And I'm going to show you. Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, what is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But in Christ Jesus... You who once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, and who has made us both one and has broken down in his, in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and and so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross by killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far off, sorry, far off, (laughs) preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints, the members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you see how this message, Paul, you can sit down now. I might get you up later. Do you see how that Paul is saying that actually both there is this one who had the promise and the covenant and the law, who were near to God, and those who were far off and were away from God and did not have the promises, did not have the mark of being part of God. And what he does is he brings them both together because he says, this is the new man in Christ. This is the newness in Christ. It's not that those who were once given the promise... And those who were not, but now we are one in Christ so that we both come together. And this is the unity that Paul keeps on harping on about. That we are one new man. There is no longer a Jew and Gentile. But the promise now has become fulfilled. And Paul picks this back up as we go into verse uh, chapter, thir- uh, chapter 3 when he starts talking about the mystery of the gospel. And he says this, When you read this, you will perceive with 
You will perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been revealed to this holy apostle and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles... This is a mystery. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That promise that was given to the Jews, to the nation of Israel way back then, is now the inheritance of the Gentiles. And Paul is saying here that this is a mystery of the gospel. This is a mystery that has been given to us through Christ Jesus now. None of the old prophets fully could comprehend what this mystery would be. Now, there was, you read through and you can see there's an inkling of it, but they never comprehended what it would mean that all nations would come and be joined to the nation of Israel. They would bring their wealth in. They would come and be part of it. See, they just thought of it as a political perhaps. But here, Paul is saying the mystery has finally been revealed. The mystery is this, that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul was giving us this picture to try and help us understand that actually when God speaks through the Old Testament, It is relevant, it is good, and it is wholesome for us because the promises in there come into fulfillment through Christ who is now, in the mystery that has been revealed to us, has now made us part of that inheritance. See, the Jews are not done away with. And we have Paul speak about this in Romans. You know, he says, like, we've been grafted into the olive tree. He says, just because some of them got broken off, Don't boast over that, but if God can break them off, he could break you off as well. But no, hope that those who have been broken off may be grafted back in. And here's Paul's trying to say, this whole promise of redemptive history has always been for all nations. Always. This is the promise that God had right from the start from Abraham. His promise was that all would come in. And so now we see this promise being able to bless all nations. Well, it's possible now, isn't it? Not only possible, it will happen. All nations will be blessed because the promise is now for all those who are in the body of Christ. So what is a church? Well, Paul puts it in this way. He says, and as I've been saying, the church is the body of Christ with Christ being the head. He goes on in Ephesians to say, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This promise of being united together with the promises that he has given to Israel. This is what he's saying. Worthy of the calling which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure 
of Christ's gifts. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all, and this is what I want you to take away with, okay, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood. So don't take this manhood to mean only men. This is saying maturity in who you are. This is saying growing up into being the full human that God has called you to be. Okay? So when it uses stuff like manhood, this is not speaking to man. This is saying be mature people as God has called you to be. So if you want to change that to womanhood, go ahead and do it. If you want to change it to childhood, go ahead and do it. Because we are all urged to grow up into maturity. To, measure, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and, um, craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking in truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is ahead, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it may build itself up in love. You see, the reason we talk about the body is because we are to be united together so that we may build up one another. You see, we are here for the encouragement and the building up of one another. In love, and as we've heard, we heard on those three nights that love is not just a politeness. It's an action. I want to just show two videos. And the first one is of, um, what's his surname? Derek. What? Redmond. Yes, Derek Redmond. I should know because I'm the one who got these videos. So Derek Redmond... um, is uh, this, a lot of you have probably already seen this, but he was this man who had spent his four years training for the Olympics, and he was actually one of the favorites to medal in this 400-meter race. Uh, and all of his uh, life was focused on this one race. So we're just going to watch now this one race that he had spent his whole four years leading up to.
So in that first video, his hamstring was torn, but he had spent his four years preparing for that race. And he said, I must finish it. And as he's running, you see that man run out onto that. That was his father. He, like you could never imagine it now, but he pushed out through the crowd, ran to his son, and he puts his arm around his son. Do you know what he says to his son? You've got nothing to prove, son. You've got nothing to prove. And he says, Dad, I need to finish. And he says, oh, we'll finish together. And you see them, they're walking down. And do you know what I love about this is the officials try to get in there and say, you can't be here, you can't be doing that. And what does his father do? Get away! Get out of here! And as he's walking and he's right near the finish line and Derek goes to his dad, I need to finish in lane five. Did you see that at the end? He points, dad, I must finish in lane five. I started in lane five. I must finish in lane five. And his dad crosses a line with him in the lane he started in. This is a picture of what the church is. There are some people who are assured of what their life should be like and then it doesn't go to plan and they thought they were running in the the race and they were running well and all of a sudden it feels like someone's shot them and our job as a church is to get alongside those who are struggling and say, you've got nothing to prove, but we will go the whole way with you. And then we pray and hope that the lane they started running in is the lane they finish in. Where they started running for Christ, they will finish at the end running for Christ. So this is a picture of the church. When he talks about the unity, this is what it's talking about. Now I'm going to play this next one. Just before we play it, this is about um, John and Alistair Brownlee. Now these guys, this is a race, I think it's a year or so, uh, a couple of years after they won the Olympics. So Johnny Brownlee, who's, in, who's behind his brother, won the gold medal at the Olympics in London and his brother got the silver. And so they're fierce competitors, probably as fierce as you could probably have competitors be. So we're going to watch this video now. Oh, and he's starting to slow. And there is a little way to go. There's half a K to go. And Johnny is running out of time and is losing... He's losing his sense of direction. This is worrying. Oh, goodness me. This is a horrible sight. Jonathan Brownlee has lost it now and has staggered to a stop at the side of the course. And Alistair's stopped to help him along. And Alistair is going to try and carry his brother home. Dramatic scenes in Cozumel as the Olympic champion carries his younger brother towards the podium. Oh, my God, I cannot believe what we are seeing here. Matt, is this allowed? Is he allowed to help his brother? You know, is that part of the rules? I'm not too sure. We've never seen anything like this before. Unbelievable scenes. Unbelievable scenes in Cozumel. To finish in second and third, but Johnny can hardly stand. And Alistair is having to drag him across the line and pushing him home, pushing him home for second. 
Johnny finishes in second. Goodness me, what an incredible conclusion here. This also is a picture of what the church is. Alistair Brownlee was so far ahead at that point, his brother said he wishes the idiot had of just paced himself. That was his words afterwards, because his brother was so far ahead, he could have jogged it. So far ahead, but he had run out of steam. He did not have the energy. He was exhausted. And you saw that there. He didn't really even know where he was. But did you see how his brother, not even a question, carries him, basically drags him the rest of the way. And when they get to the finish line, what does he do? Like if it was me and my brother, I know what I would do. I would step over four at first and help him over afterwards. But that's not the case here. What does he do? He pushes him so that he may finish the race. He pushes him and he then becomes the one who is first. He ends up winning, uh, coming second in that race. He shouldn't have even finished. And did you hear the difference between the two commentators? Those who were not involved in this race at all. Did you hear the difference? One's there going, this is amazing. This is an extraordinary event. And the other one goes, is this even legal? Should they be allowed to do this? In fact, people were calling them cheats. But this is a thing. The church is like this. When we see someone struggling, they may look like they're very far ahead. They may look like they've run the, run the race and they're approaching the finish line strongly and they should get there easily. But it is our job always to see those who are stumbling or struggling and to come alongside them and, if necessary, drag them to the finish line. You see... Church is about self-sacrifice, first and foremost to Christ, and then to one another. The picture of the church being the body of Christ is that we can't get any closer together, people. We just can't. In fact, we're called to continually get closer together. Come out here quick. I just want to show you one more thing and then I'm going to finish because you need to understand what it means to be close in the body of Christ. If you two stand the opposite. Now, I want you both. This is what it means to become closer together in Christ and to, to be able to know when one another is struggling. If you both, I'm going to pretend to be Christ and you're going to step closer. Both of you step closer to Christ, to me. What happens? They're closer to me, but they're closer to one another. Step closer again and again. And when you get closer and closer to Christ, you actually become closer and closer with one another. And then when you see these things of people struggling, it's not even a problem. You see it because you know it, because you're right there. And this whole concept of us being the body and working for one another, you can sit down, members of the body, This is what it means. So we believe as a church, we believe as this local expression of the called out ones gathered in a public place, that we are one, united in Christ to be closer together. So that when we see each other struggling or succeeding, we can be there 
to champion them. And the reason we do this, the finish line is that we would all grow up, this is a verse I want you to take with, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. This is what the church is. What is the church? It is the called out ones gathered in a public place so that we may come closer together, united in Christ, so that we can encourage, uplift, build together, so that those who are struggling may no longer be struggling, but may finish the line and come to full maturity so they can finally and fully enter into the fullness of all Christ has for them. The blessings of heaven is no longer something that is for them who are far ahead or those who are near, but for all to come together. This is the church that we may all grow up into maturity into the head, which is Christ. So I want you to go away with this one thing. How may I build up others so that they may attain the fullness of maturity in Christ? Let me pray, and then we're going to, there will be prayer team down the front if you'd like prayer, but I'm going to pray for you right now, and if you are struggling in any area, then be assured that there are people here who would love to carry you over that line. And if you are not struggling, then look to those who need a helping hand. Lord Jesus, we thank you that It is only through faith that we can enter into your body. We thank you that as we enter through faith, which is displayed in that sacrament of baptism, that we are now joined one together, members, individual members joined together to form the body of Christ, both here locally and universally. We thank you that you have called us not to forsake fellowship, but to come together as one who fellowship with one another, who knows one another, who can understand the burdens and the struggles and the uh, victories and the testimonies of praise that people have. That united together we may come into a fullness, that maturity that you have called us into, that we may all mature and be called into and drawn up into the head which is Christ, our living hope. Lord Jesus, give us eyes and ears to see those who are in need. Give us strength and courage and boldness to approach those people who need you displayed to them. And Lord Jesus, give us the strength and the courage to admit when we are weak and in need of being dragged along ourselves. I pray, Jesus, bless our fellowship together. In Jesus' name, amen.